presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now that the 2023 legislative session is done, it's time to look ahead at what future sessions might bring. Tonight, we get Governor Brad Little's thoughts. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, we sit down with Governor Brad Little for the second part of a two-part interview discussing his views on the 2023 legislative session, as well as what the coming years may bring. But first, let's get you caught up on the week. Citizens group Reclaim Idaho announced the formation of a new coalition called Idahoans for Open Primaries. The group plans to collect signatures for a citizen's ballot initiative that would allow all voters to vote in party primary elections, as opposed to just registered members of the party. Currently, the Idaho Republican Party conducts a closed primary, allowing only registered Republicans to participate. The petition would also allow ranked choice voting in Idaho, otherwise known as instant runoff voting, in which voters pick a first and second choice candidate. If no candidate wins more than 50% of the first choice vote, votes for the last place candidate are transferred to the voters' second choice. County clerks continue that process until a candidate receives more than 50% of the vote. The 2023 legislature passed a bill to ban the practice. The petition is supported by well-known Republicans, including former House Speaker Bruce Newcomb. But on Thursday, Idaho Republican Party Chairwoman Dorothy Moon sent out a statement opposing the petition, calling it a leftist scheme that will benefit Democrats. The coalition has until May 1, 2024, to collect the needed number of signatures to get the question on the November 2024 ballot. On Tuesday, Idaho Supreme Court Justice John Stegner announced his retirement effective October 31st. In his resignation letter to Governor Little, Stegner cited financial considerations and disparities in pay between judges and attorneys, writing, quote, the job requires extraordinary hours to do it well. In sum, the state is asking judges to do too much for too little, unquote. Idaho's justices and judges were the only state employees to not receive a pay raise last year after the legislature failed to pass a bill addressing judicial pay. Governor Butch Otter appointed Stegner to the Supreme Court in 2018. The Idaho Judicial Council will recommend candidates to Governor Little to replace Stegner. This week, producer Ruth Brown sat down with two physicians from St. Luke's to discuss some of the medical and legal concerns around the state's abortion ban and how those decisions are affecting Idaho physicians. Here's a preview of what Dr. Jim Souza, St. Luke's chief executive physician, had to say. The, the entire system is starting to shake now because, you know, the, the frontline family physicians, OBGYNs working in the community, seeing the impacts on maternal fetal medicine doctors who are the most in the crosshairs of these laws are starting to ask, is it even safe for me to do this here? And, you know, a visual of a system of care that I would just share with the audience, it's, it's like a Jenga tower. And you can pull out certain pieces and the tower still stands and we make do. Um, but 
uh, as as the momentum for this exodus increases, we're, we're going to have pieces of that Jenga tower that would, would literally um, uh, collapse the system. This is also more acute in rural communities. You can find that full interview on the Idaho Reports podcast. You can find the Idaho Reports podcast on your favorite podcast player or find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. And make sure you watch Idaho Reports online for updates on ongoing court fights over the abortion ban. In late April, Idaho Reports visited Governor Brad Little at his home in Emmett to discuss the 2023 legislative session. In the second part of a two-part interview, I asked him his thoughts on new education initiatives. This was a big year for education, of course, including the Idaho Launch Scholarship, uh, the program expansion for the Idaho Launch Program. But one of the tweaks to the program that you proposed was uh, telling students that they couldn't use the $8,000 for four-year institutions like University of Idaho, Boise State University, LCSC, ISU. We know that those universities offer training for arguably in-demand careers like teaching and healthcare. Uh, are you concerned about the new restrictions that were placed on that program? I, I take a different view of it uh, significantly because originally uh, it was all going to funnel through launch. Uh, but actually, when I started talking about it last fall, I wanted to go through opportunity scholarships, which is what you're talking about as our traditional four-year institutions. The trailer bill basically said, if you want to go career technical, if you want to be a welder or plumber or an HVAC or a truck driver or a lineman, you go through launch. If if you are a high school graduating senior and you want to go to the, the traditional master's degree, the opportunity scholarships. So put more money in opportunity scholarships and instead of having them all go through launch, now opportunity scholarships are one way and launch is another. But we have always, uh, the history of this state, paid for part of the cost of education, for journalists, for animal scientists, for uh, political scientists, for lawyers, for doctors, but we never paid for career technical. Uh, we've had some programs. Now those great careers in career technical, we're gonna have more kids staying in Idaho with great careers because the launch program is gonna be available to them. I know there were a lot of public school advocates who were very happy with a lot of the legislation that came out of this session. Raising starting teacher pay, um, the the making permanent the empowering parents grant program, um, passing a bill that opens up open enrollment at all public schools across Idaho. Um, there was also a large investment in school facilities, um, tackling it through multiple ways, including the property tax bill. Uh, but at the same time, you know, just last week a fire caused by faulty electrical wiring burned down a good portion of a Pocatello High School. And we know that there are a number of old schools around Idaho that have a lot of backlogged maintenance. Uh, are, are you worried that this year's investments might not go far enough for addressing these problems? Well, it'll continue to be a, an issue. And how we do that, uh, the, the part of the property tax bill, uh, I don't think addresses the big issue, uh, but Remember in property tax, the money that we're putting in this 120 million ongoing plus, plus the uh, 
uh, surplus eliminator part of it, uh, the money that we put into teacher pay, uh, teacher benefits, uh, certified staff pay, uh, school safety, technology, and discretionary money, which is for anything, plus the money we're putting into roads, sewer, water, and all those other programs are programs that are generally funded by property tax. As this plays out, and, and highway district commissioners, school board members, county commissioners, city councilmen see that, there should be a lessened need for property taxes. Now, I'm not making any promises, uh, but those are all indirect property tax relief that are out there right now. That will open up more avenues for us to do, which is our constitutional obligation, which is for school districts uh, to, run a, to run bonds. And I understand why the bonds haven't been passing. Particularly in the residential area, people have had their property taxes double in, in some instances four or five years. Well, you can see why people are, we're having a hard time getting votes. The, the acceleration of real estate prices are going down. We're, we're paying for more and more of the services. I don't know, uh, and that is gonna be a big policy issue, if we want the state to pay for all schools, uh, because if you got a school district that's done the right thing and has built their schools, they haven't grown too fast, they've got capacity, they've done the maintenance, we're gonna take the taxes from them and pay for the district that hasn't done anything. How many, my staff doesn't like when I say this, how many basketball gymnasiums are you gonna give every school district when they do it? Those are big policy dis, uh, decisions that I'm more than willing to have with my legislative partners. But let's see how all this money in property tax relief and roads and sewer and water uh, go to alleviating the concern I think communities ought to pay for their schools and we can help them as we do now with bond levy equalization. But getting rid of that March election date, which was part of the property tax bill that passed, that complicates the conversation for a lot of school districts. Yeah, we've got a election coming up here in, in just a few weeks here in Emmett. That's, it's, and the, the March date is not that important in this year, but it's gonna be real important in, in uh, a year from now when you have a big uh, and but I, I believe that we shouldn't have too many election dates. But remember, we used to have every date was available for a school bond election, and the deal that was cut between the legislature and the education proponents was keep November, keep May, keep March, and keep August. The school uh, advocates were willing to give up August, but the legislature, to my less than enthusiastic uh, response did away with March. I think March is critical in the long run to help these school districts. You know, it's speaking of too many election dates, you've said that any fixes to the presidential primary are in the legislature's hands. Um, this is the first year they can call themselves back into session. Yeah. Have you heard anything about a special session? Uh, <laughs> I even, even before they amended the constitution, uh, I would have legislators call me and say, this is critical to my constituents or to me, we need a special session. Myself and literally all of my predecessors, uh, we have the least amount of special sessions in Idaho, or at least we have. We've only had four in the last 20 years uh, that there ought to be an agreement. Uh, it ought to be 
widely viewed by the legislature before they come to town. Otherwise, if you come to town and there's no agreement, the whole process for the public to engage is done in you know, one committee room or one leadership room. And so from the transparency side, I think that uh, special sessions where you waive all the rules and, and hurry things through is only should be necessary if there's a real emergency uh, as we have in the past. Have you heard anything about lawmakers calling themselves back? Always. One last question. What didn't the legislature address this year that you wish they had? Well, probably the only thing is, uh, you know, the package that we sent to them. I said we got 95% of what we wanted done. Uh, 5% was I wanted to do some more, paying down some more debt uh, that we didn't get done. Uh, but, but we've done a great job of our rainy day funds, uh, surpluses and out years. Uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the spending level uh, in the out years of some of the programs we have uh, because we've done a great job of getting getting our great bond rating. Uh, we just issued uh, $400 million worth of bonds for road projects. And in this market, to get that done at 3.8% uh, was, was absolutely incredible. You started your second term as governor and the first one the first term was marked in large part by COVID. What do you envision for your second term? <laughs> Not COVID. Not COVID. I think all of us could agree in, with in, that. Anything but COVID. No, I mean, we're going to implement, you know, the, we propose the legislature passes laws and appropriates money, and then we have to execute. And, you know, particularly our investments in education, whether it's what we did before in literacy or what we're doing now and competitive teacher pay and, and launch in particular, uh, you know, launch is literally, you know, there's some sideboards on it, but the Workforce Development Council is going to have to be attuned to students and employers about what they want. We, we believe it won't be fully subscribed because, you know, if you need more nurses or you need more welders or you need more, it'll take us a little while for either our community colleges or private institutions to build capacity. But, you know, the, the bait is there. The, the money's there. And, you know, a lot of kids that wouldn't have had a chance to go on are now literally going to be able to walk out of high school, sign up for a program, and in two years they'll be available, whether it's down at the lab at Idaho Falls uh, where they need 500 new people a year, whether it's construction jobs here in the Treasure Valley, whether it's, uh, you know, advanced manufacturing uh, jobs here, or, you know, Lewiston's a good example. There's lots of great jobs there, but they, they got to be good welders. They got to work for uh, uh, Schweitzer Engineering. So, you know, it'll... It'll, it'll be a game changer, I believe so. How involved do you see yourself being with those workforce count, workforce development council recommendations on what's an in-demand career? Well, they, the workforce development council and the legislation give they, give, gave them uh, autonomy to decide. And of course they're 
They're a very diverse group of businesses from all over the state, uh, uh, educators. Uh, they just have to listen to what kids and what the employers want. And, and then it's, it says in demand. So it, we don't want to be spending money on kids that aren't going to have a job. But if the job market stays anything like it is right now, that is not going to be an issue. So we're going to, we'll get them employed uh, real fast. And I was at a national governor's conference on a kind of a workforce development. I was moderating the panel and one of the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture economists said from an internal return on investment, uh, Buster wants to go back to the barn. <laughs> Sorry, Buster. Uh, 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 what we're doing is going to be the highest return for uh, what the state puts into it. And, of course, the kids will have put uh, uh, some resources into it. Quit. Uh, I told you he wants to go back to the barn. Uh, <laughs> He's blaming me for uh, it, too. He's giving but, me the eye. But more importantly, uh, the businesses are going to have to say, if you want welders, they're going to have to provide the welding equipment. Uh, healthcare is a good example. These hospitals, uh, they're going to need nurses, but uh, they're going to have to have their senior nurses there training other nurses to be nurses. So uh, business is going to have skin in the game. These kids are going to have skin in the game, but we got a real robust community college system that I think will be very attuned to those because they want those kids placed and going to work right away. Why did you decide to run for a second term? What, why did I decide to run for senator? <laughs> no, why did you? <laughs> why did you decide to run for a second term? Oh, we we had lots to do. There was uh, there was no question about it. I mean. As you pointed out, we were pretty distracted during the first term with COVID and, you know, kids not in schools, businesses uh, being uh, challenged, healthcare being challenged. Uh, now we can implement. I mean, we recovered jobs faster than any state. Idaho was number one job producer after COVID and it's going to continue that way. So now what I got to have is skilled up uh, uh, workforce and launch in our higher education systems will get that done. You got a lot done that was on your priority list in this first year of your second term. You've got three more legislative sessions left until 2026. What's gonna be on your priority list? Well, you know, you've gotta be responsive to what the economy does, what the job market does. Uh, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that launch gets fully subscribed uh, and, and then we'll know more about, I, I can't imagine the construction industry is going to stay as robust as it is, but it could. Uh, and then, you know, if the construction industry slows down, how do we retrain electricians and plumbers and HVAC to do other jobs? Uh, that's going to be part of it. But I'm, you know, there's great potential at the lab. Obviously, the new Micron facility is going to, uh, uh, oh, you don't think so? You think I was wrong? Buster the economist. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, there's uh, there's lots going on, you know, and the other thing I want to see is the results of all our investments in literacy. I'm serious when I say I want all kids reading proficiently at the end of the third grade. And what do I have to do to inspire 
school districts uh, to get that done is going to be important. Third grade literacy was top of the priority list for Governor Otter, has been top of the priority list for you. Between COVID and other challenges, we haven't seen much movement on those percentage rates. Well, we, you know, as if you look down into the data, uh, the one thing we do know is what's working and what's not working. And some districts are making, you know, some, some districts have got 80, 90% proficient by the third grade. We need to take what's working in those districts and transfer it to other districts. And I do think behavioral health and mental health is going to be a, an issue because, uh, you know, these kids have challenges. We literally this morning had a presentation by one of our interns about, you know, the, the challenges of social media on these kids and how we handle that, how we help them cope. But uh, I think a little bit of counseling early yields great results. Uh, you let these kids' problems get kind of ahead of them. Uh, then, you know, you got substance abuse, you got all these other challenges. And people say, well, we didn't have all those counselors when I was in school. Life is a lot more complicated now than it was when I was in school. It's co more complicated now than it was even 15 years it, ago. Yeah, or 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. Oh. Save me paying for a flat tire. <laughs> True. Uh, have you given much thought to running for a third term? No. I got, uh, I got plenty of uh, runway to get things done. Uh, in the next uh, three years, and uh, but you know I've got, <laughs> like I said, my my staff, uh, my administrators. Uh, you know we continue to work on. In fact, this morning we had a meeting on, uh, you know, kind of getting the right signals to our uh, administrators and our departments. Uh, we're going to continue to do that to kind of uh, sharpen the saw to perfect what we're doing. Uh, in in every agency, and I'm I'm pleased uh, uh, with what's going on. It's always a challenge, but uh, it was easy. Everybody'd be doing it. Have you ruled out ru running for a third no. term? You haven't ruled it out. No. What are the factors? <laughs> There's lots of them. There's lots of them. I. Uh, but that's I I, I mean literally, uh, the the one thing we are doing is we started doing it and we I had another conversation about that today is doing a five-year budget to where whatever we do today doesn't put us in an economic hole to where we either have to cut services or raise taxes uh, so that's actually been one of my highest priorities is that uh, we we scale our spending uh, with revenue growth plus probably we'll probably continue to do property tax relief and we might even we'll probably even do some more income tax uh idaho's a tough state because we got all these states around us that don't have income taxes and so we you know we want to be competitive but it doesn't seem to be stopping people from moving to idaho i wanted to ask about all of the growth that we've seen and the economic outlook and everything together now, the legislature only has so much control. You only have so much control. 
overall, are you happy with the trajectory that the state is taking, not just economically, but culturally as well? Well, it's, I mean, it's changing. We have so many people moving here. Uh, it's it's going to continue to be a challenge. You know, we made a great investment in our parks this year, the biggest ever by far. Uh, but one of the things when I go and talk to rural Idaho is everybody leaves Boise and goes to Boise County or Hawaii County. What do I do about emergency services? Uh, you know, there we had capital for a day in Bruno, and one of the biggest hot issues was how do I, how do we pay for emergency services for all those city folk to come out and get in trouble recreating on the ground in our county? And I think we're gonna we we actually need to. There's a study going on now about how do we pay for emergency services in rural Idaho, and we need to be cognizant that. We all don't just say, you guys bear the cost of the great outdoors in Idaho and we will continue to be cognizant of that. Either that or you go and recreate, you're on your own. That's a choice you make. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think what we talked about is is emergency services a, a vital service and do we need to provide it and who pays for it? Uh, do the the taxpayers in Hawaii and Boise County have to pay for the emergency services from everybody from Boise and Nampa, or does the state share part of that cost? But there's been a lot of concern lately about extremist rhetoric, you know, between last summer and the Patriot Front, stopping by Coeur d'Alene Pride, um, people making not so veiled threats against law enforcement, pretty close to your house, who are trying to serve civil papers and warrants. I, Do you think the state is doing enough to push back against that extremism? Well, A, we want everybody to feel safe in Idaho, but a lot of the issue to me are people that come here and they always talk about, we don't want to be Seattle or Portland or San Francisco. Well, we're not any of those, and I understand people being concerned about it, but we need to let let them see what the difference is. It's, it's not that the unsafe streets in those communities are in any way uh, a problem in Idaho, and public safety is something that, again, we're focusing on here. So are you happy now that you're back at the barn? He doesn't want to go any further. <laughs> He's good. There we go. Yeah, just just one more question for me. You know, when you're, you've still got three years left in your second term, but we've talked a lot this year about Governor Bat's legacy. Uh, have you thought at all about what you want your legacy to be? <laughs> all kids reading proficiently at the end of the third grade would be a great start. Um, you know, and I think that this, and this is akin to what uh, Governor Bat you know, that we're fiscally responsible, that we don't overtax, we don't overregulate. We did an incredible amount of work in the first term on regulation. Uh, now we're <clears throat> continuing to modify that and make it better. But I, I want Idaho to be a place in particular that an Idaho kid can get educated, whether it's career technical or traditional bachelor degree, 
and start a business and provide for their family, that's, and stay right here in Idaho. Play out in the great outdoors of Idaho and respectfully. So. Okay. Anything else you wanted to add? I think that's also it. Surrounded by cameras? Yep. No, <laughs> I, I think that's where I will de-mic and depart. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Hey, thank you. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.